Hello out there. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. Today, I'm joined by nutrition scientist Megan Lee to talk about the impact of food on mental health with a focus on depression. Megan is a senior teaching fellow and researcher at Bond University in Australia. She has a bachelor in psychology and is on the cusp of completing her PhD in nutritional psychiatry. Throughout her career, she's published research on food and mood, body image, disordered eating, dietary patterns, and mental health. In this conversation, Megan gives an overview of what we know and what we don't know about the link between food and depression. We also talk a lot about how science is done and why it's often difficult to draw firm conclusions from a single nutritional study. Megan also shares a fascinating story of how her study on plant-based diets and depression was misrepresented in the media. This story is an excellent cautionary tale for anyone taking health headlines at face value. Without further ado, let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Welcome, Megan. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Why don't we get started with a little bit about you? Can you describe your education and where you are now in your journey? Sure. My name is Megan Lee and I'm a senior teaching fellow at Bond University on the lovely Gold Coast in Australia. And I started out doing an undergraduate in psychology. And while I was doing my undergraduate in psychology, I became very passionate about food and its role in mental health. So I did all my electives in my undergrad in nutrition. And then once I got to my honours year, I decided that I really wanted to do research in the field of nutrition and psychology and was really surprised by the time I finished my honours that not a lot has actually been done in that field. So that propelled you to do your PhD in nutritional psychiatry? That's right. So I loved research so much that I decided I didn't want to go into clinical psychology, that I wanted to become a psychological researcher. So to do that, I applied for a PhD. And for the last four years, I have been studying food and mental health. I think many people are unfamiliar with the field of nutritional psychiatry. So can you share a little bit about what that field is and how it came to be? Sure. The field of nutritional psychiatry has been around only for the last decade or so. It was originally founded by a Professor Felice Jacker at the Food and Mood Centre in Australia, in Melbourne. And she did her PhD way back on some of the things that she found about food and mental health. But when I started my PhD, I was really, really surprised that the field had only really been around for the last kind of 10 years. So we already knew that eating healthy, whole food diets were good for other chronic lifestyle diseases like cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes, but no one had ever really looked at whether or not healthy and unhealthy dietary patterns influence mental health. Mm-hmm. May, can you give us the lay of the land? I know this is a huge question, but where are we now? Are there some really well-established I steer away from the word fact, but what are sort of the leading theories that have the strongest evidence for which sorts of dietary patterns or nutrients? Like, are there some things that are consistently associated with mental health? Or are we seeing one study finds one thing and a different study finds a different conclusion? 
So what we're finding across the observational research, and when I say observational, I mean kind of cross-sectional surveys, longitudinal analyses, those types of survey style research projects, is that dietary patterns that are rich in whole plant foods like fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, whole grains, those types of things are protective against the symptoms of depression, while diets that are high in ultra-processed foods, refined and sugary foods are contributing to the symptoms of depression. There's only been four now, one new one came out last week, four randomized control trials on dietary patterns and depression. And all four of them found that changing from an unhealthy to a healthy dietary pattern did improve participants' depressive symptoms. Excellent. Yeah, I want to dig into that a bit more in detail later on the difference between observational trials and control trials and all the caveats that come with both of those. But just to recap, the strongest theory at this point is that overall diet quality is the leading contender with the most robust evidence for a link with depression in particular. Most of the research is on depression. I do have other colleagues in the field who are looking at serious mental illness. And when we talk serious mental illness, I mean schizophrenia and psychosis. And we're also finding that there is quite a bit of evidence for that as well. But other colleagues also do research into childhood disorders such as autism spectrum disorder and ADHD as well. Okay. So for the sake of this conversation, we'll be focused mostly on depression because that's your area of expertise. That's right. <laughs> yeah, and it's already a diverse condition, is it not? I wanted to ask you next about mechanisms. And whenever I think about any disease, I think back to when I worked initially in cancer research and I learned that the term breast cancer doesn't really make sense because there's so many different diverse pathologies within that or ovarian cancer or any type of cancer. It doesn't make sense to name it based on the organ. You need to think about the underlying cause. And so how does that work with depression? And then therefore, which strategies are going to be effective? That's a really good question because depression is a very complex and multifactorial disorder that is influenced by multiple things. Now, back in the day, they believed or the research field and the clinical field believed that depression was only about a lack of serotonin in the brain, but we're coming to find that that may not actually be the case. So there are other things that are influencing depression like chronic inflammation, brain plasticity, the HPA axis, the gut microbiome brain connection is a very new and emerging field that seems to be getting some really strong evidence for whatever is good for the gut is good for the brain. So one of the factors you just mentioned is chronic inflammation, and I'm really curious to hear more about that one because it is such a big buzzword right now. So how well do we really understand the link between diet and inflammation and depression? How well has this been studied? And see, this is the problem with nutrition research as a field in itself, is that it's very difficult to measure what someone eats over a period of time. Unless you have someone in a laboratory and you feed them only what they're allowed to eat for a period of time, it's very tricky to actually measure those types of things because people either, memory is a very, very bad indicator of science, <laughs> but also there's things like social desirability bias where people will only tell us the good foods that they eat rather than 
I'll just not say that Mars bar that I had at lunchtime. I just admit that one. So there's a lot of that going on and a lot of scales that I used to measure diet, like food frequency questionnaires or food diaries or 24-hour recall, are all so different that all the results that we get for research like this is not comparable (laughs) in some ways. Mm -hmm. I see what you mean. Several of my guests have specialized or had some of their focus on the methods of nutritional research because there is so much work to do there and there are so many issues to try to overcome. So that's something that has to always be in the back of your mind with any nutritional study, right? Yeah, exactly. But I guess I'm just curious. I don't know how much this is something you've looked at, but to what extent diet quality correlates with this inflammatory, systemic inflammatory markers? Like, is that fairly well established? It's not something I've looked at. Because the field is so new and because of the problems that we have with nutritional research, these types of studies haven't really been done so much yet. Most of the research in this field is observational surveys. So we ask people, what do you eat? We ask them a scale of depression, and then we get our results. Like I said, there's only four randomized control trials in the field that have looked at causality, where they've actually put someone on a diet or suggested a diet to be on. And that's another problem again, because it's not controlled in a lab. (laughs) So you don't know if the participants are actually eating the diet that you've told them to. Yes. (laughs) These are the problems that we have. We are still struggling through the weeds in this research to try and figure out what is the best methodology to find out these answers. Yeah. I think, as we just mentioned earlier, in any nutritional question, because every study has so many limitations, you want to look for the messages that are consistent and rise above the noise that can affect most any study. I wanted to quickly ask you about on this whole gut-brain axis to elaborate a little bit, because I've heard about the gut microbiome making serotonin, and I don't really know enough about how well established that is or whether it's more of a fanciful idea. Yes. So (laughs) they do call the gut the second brain now. Yes. And there is a direct link between the gut and the brain through the vagus nerve. And there's a lot of research happening at the moment about that. But this whole idea that 90% of your serotonin is made in your gut, I haven't seen, and I'm not saying that it's not out there, but I haven't seen myself proper scientific proof of that yet. But if there's a scientist out there who does have a link to a paper that shows us that, I would love that. But the gut microbiome research is so new, but there is a lot of exciting things happening in that realm at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you want to know not just some measure of the amount, abundance, but also the amount of the activity that's relevant to the outcome at the neurons that are relevant to the outcome. That's exactly right. So let's segue now into your research story. So I discovered you through a conversation you had on another podcast called The Proof with Simon. And you guys had a chat about this interesting way that your work unfolded on social media. Well, first of all, on mainstream media, and then how that unfolded on social media and some of the debates on there. Can you walk through that story? Because I think it has really interesting and important lessons on how each of us navigate health headlines and how important it is to take things with a grain of salt. Yeah. To give a little bit of a background to what happened, my PhD was coming to a close. So I am almost finished. And my PhD was on dietary patterns and depression in the general population. 
But what I was finding across this whole body of research, so I did four different research arms to my PhD. And what I was finding consistently in the results, in the literature, was that every recommendation for a healthy diet was fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, whole grains, probiotics, omega-3s, complex carbohydrates, dietary fiber. And I'm like, hang on a second, this is all plant food. And it kept coming up and it kept coming up. And these definitions of a healthy diet were always about plants. Now, I'm not a vegan or a vegetarian myself. I eat more of a Mediterranean style dietary pattern where I eat small amounts of meat as a seasoning and I eat fish and some dairy. But this was always coming up in my research, plants, plants, plants. I'm like, this is interesting. So one of my honours students and I decided to have a look at plant-based diets because what we found in the literature was that vegans and vegetarians actually had a higher rate of depression than the general population, but it seemed that their diet should actually be protecting them from depression. And I was like, what is this weird relationship? And so we wanted to look at that. So we did a survey on vegans, vegetarians, and omnivores and diet quality So low quality being those ultra processed, refined and sugary diets and high quality being whole foods and depressive symptoms. Now, we had a little bit of a problem because we did this data collection during COVID when it first started and we didn't get enough omnivores. So the paper turned into looking at vegan and vegetarian diet quality and depressive symptoms. And what we found was the same as the general population. High quality diets resulted in decreased symptoms of depression, while low-quality diets resulted in increased symptoms of depression. And when we did a media press release for this paper, the media grabbed a hold of it and every media outlet in Australia over the weekend, so it was like a Friday afternoon, I think, that they sent it out, all these headlines were coming up. Vegan and vegetarian diets bad for your mental health. Being a vegan is bad for your mental health. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I got completely misrepresented by the media, even though they just grabbed a hold of the low quality thing. They didn't even say low quality. They just said, it's bad to be vegan, bad for your mental health. And so over the weekend, Twitter went crazy and I had lots of angry people messaging me saying, what did you find? This isn't correct. I'm like, no, actually, that's not what we found. And I spent the weekend linking the paper to everybody and saying, this is what we actually found. A high quality vegan and vegetarian diet is actually good for mental health. So that happened. And in the interim, Simon Hill from The Proof messaged me and he's like, how about we do a podcast to clear up this misrepresentation of your research? Mm -hmm. Oh, that must have been so frustrating to see the headline directly opposing the message you're trying to convey. Exactly. The way that they wrote it was like it was a comparison to an omnivore diet, which is not even what we did. Our methodology was not that. So Simon and I got together and we're like, we should look at this in more detail. And we are currently working on a prospective study over a period of time that will tease out some of the reasons why I hypothesize the vegans and vegetarians actually have higher depression when their diet actually is protective. So what is your hypothesis? How could it be that you said that there's a consistent finding across the literature that many components of a vegan diet or vegetarian diet are protective? And yet we often see in survey studies, vegans having a higher rate of depression. What are some ways to reconcile that? 
So my hypothesis is twofold. Number one, I think it has a lot to do with caring about things external to yourself, animal cruelty, sustainability, environmental concerns. That's one. So the weight of the world is kind of on the shoulders of people who are vegan and vegetarian sometimes, where omnivores don't tend to think about those issues as much. The second thing is vegans and vegetarians can be socially excluded because of their dietary pattern. Hmm. Yeah, you already got me thinking about how might you go about testing this. Because people go vegetarian or vegan for different reasons, right? There's the ethical camp, and then there's also the I'm doing it for my health or I'm doing it for the planet. I guess the plan and the ethical fall maybe in the same boat of a burden you're carrying. But there's certainly a subset, especially amongst the over 40s, if you look at consumers who are eating the alternative meat burgers and so on, though they're health motivated. So you might see a different relationship depending on your motivation. That's exactly right. And I think there's other things as well that we haven't thought about. Something came up in a tweet last week about vegan and vegetarian diets potentially being for weight loss. Yes. Not health. Health and weight loss are completely different things. And the other arm of my research is actually about body image satisfaction, intuitive eating, and food restriction and how bad that is for your mental health. So weight loss on purpose and health reasons are completely two different reasons to be trying a diet. And something that we thought about and we had a discussion about was potentially people who have tried every single diet then become vegan and vegetarian to try and lose weight. And that's the only type of diet that has let them do that and they stay on that. So then we might also have an inflated rate of vegan and vegetarians who have disordered eating patterns. Right. So that's another thing as well. Yes, it definitely is marketed sometimes as a way to lose weight. Yes. And you and I had a little chat the other day, getting to know each other. And I wanted to bring up what we talked about. Another potential complication is the recruitment bias and how that can impact a study's results. So can you tell that little story? Yeah, so that's interesting because that just flows on from what we were talking about with the misrepresentation of our paper. At the same time as that happened over that weekend where it went kind of viral, we were also recruiting for the second arm of our study where we were going to compare vegans and vegetarians' diet quality and depressive symptoms. So that was actually happening at that time. So I thought, great, this media frenzy is actually a really good thing for our recruitment. So I began to, every time someone messaged me or tweeted me about the paper, I'm like, you can help us remove this bias by doing our new study. So I was linking the survey to everybody who was disgusted about the misrepresentation. And then I also got Simon to help me recruit through his social media accounts. And once we got the data and closed it off and analyzed it, we found that vegans and vegetarians actually had very low depressive symptoms, which was not what's in the literature. So much so that six or so of the participants out of 500 or so recorded a zero on the CESD, which is the Center of Epidemiological Studies of Depression Scale. Now, I've never seen that before. And neither had my co-author who was supervising the research. And we're like, something happened here. And then what we thought was that we accidentally influenced our recruitment because the people who had seen this misrepresentation in the media decided, oh, I'm going to write all of my answers to the depression questions very low so that it doesn't look like vegans and vegetarians have bad mental health. So we kind of skewed our own data. (laughs) 
Well, or those people were accurately representing themselves, but they were the people for whom they didn't see that link because they were completely non-depressive. And they said, I'll show you that I'm a good counterexample. Potentially, but we don't know that. And we can't test that unless we do a sensitivity analysis or a sub-analysis where we compare all of the participants before that date and all the participants after that date and see if their depressive symptoms are different. Mm -hmm. I think that will definitely be something that we do when we go to publish the paper. (laughs) Yeah. So I want to try to leave people with some really practical advice, both on the science literacy and on the improving your own diet to for maximal wellness mentally. And I know there's no one size fits all diet, but just to reiterate, first of all, some of the general themes on which foods promote mental health. We didn't talk about omega-3s. I think you touched on that. So I want to talk, the theme that I've heard is the plants and nuts, but I wanted to ask about omega-3s. And then maybe as you wrap up, we'll talk a few more tips on making sense of a headline and considering the potential ways that that could be misrepresented. So first on the overall tips, just Googling, I saw 10 foods to eat for mental health and 10 foods not to eat. Like, could you imagine yourself writing an article like that? And if so, what would you put in it? I actually did write an article like that for the conversation in Australia. I think it was the five foods to improve your mental health. And they were omega-3, like you said. Now, lots of people think that omega-3 only comes in fish form. (laughs) The real truth to that is that the omega-3 is actually not in the fish, it's in the algae that the fish eats. So you as a vegan or a vegetarian consumer can skip that stage, the fish stage, and just go straight to the algae, right? So it's in the algae, it's in flax seeds, it's in hemp seeds, it's in chia seeds, it's in walnuts, and you don't have to have a lot of these to get your omega-3. So I've read Simon's book, He recommends one tablespoon of chia flax or hemp a day or nine walnut halves. It's enough to get your your omega-3s. That's really good to know. And I do that. I do smoothies each morning. Complex carbohydrates was the second one. So we're talking brown rice, whole wheat bread, wholemeal, brown pasta, quinoa, seeds, things like that. Antioxidants, which are found in all our fruits and vegetables. So You don't have to be really good at science to get all your antioxidants and know that you're getting every single one. All you have to do is eat the rainbow. So different colors represent the different antioxidants. That's how I look at it. That's how I teach my Mm nine-year-old. What was the other ones? Pre and probiotics, kefir, sauerkraut, miso, some yogurts, probably not the best because they're full of sugar, kimchi, things like that. I think I'm going to have to do a whole episode on that because it's not something I've gone into enough. Yeah. What was the fifth one? Now I'm thinking back. That's okay. We don't have to rack your brain too much. My takeaway is that these are all foods that are kind of a win no matter what. And you shouldn't expect your mental health to be transformed by them. But it's kind of one of those things where it truly doesn't hurt. It could only help. Yeah. One of the things that I really like to get across from my research is you don't have to be vegan or vegetarian to benefit from this knowledge. Omnivores can benefit from this by just increasing the amount of plants that they eat. So much so that I don't think there is a difference between a 100% plant-based diet and like an 85% plant-based diet. I think the health benefits are the same between 85 and 100%. Yeah, I would tend to agree. Although, of course, it depends if that couple percent is the, the worst of the culprits. That could make a difference. But on average, it's the more plants that is the most important part. It's the more plants and the reduction of ultra-processed foods. 
So vegans and vegetarians, in our study where we looked at low and high quality, it didn't mean that vegan and vegetarians were all eating this high quality whole food diet. They weren't. A good percentage of them were eating a low quality ultra processed diet with hamburgers, pizza, vegetarian meat replacements that were not great, you know, pastries, cakes. You can have a low quality vegan and vegetarian diet. So it's just staying away from those types of foods as well. On other episodes, I've defended the plant-based meats because I think those have a place, but I think they don't serve the role that plants serve. It's kind of what I think is important, that they're not a plant replacement. They're just a meat replacement. They are made from plants, but they're not giving you the fiber and the whole phytochemical package that you would be getting if you were eating the whole plants. I completely agree. And that comes into like my whole research on intuitive eating and listening to your body and hearing what it's telling you about what is good and what is bad for you. And I'm all about moderation. I do not agree with food restriction. So if you want the donut, eat the donut, but just don't eat donuts for every meal for seven days a week. Yeah. So wrapping it up on the science literacy, I think one of the most important messages for me is just always being aware of the correlation versus causation thing, because so much nutrition research is association based. And you really do need these controlled, randomized studies that you alluded to. So it's reassuring to me that a lot of these same observations that are made in association studies, just cross-sectionally across the population, are standing up to the very small number of randomized control trials we have. That's right. So the four that have happened have all shown consistently the same thing, that switching participants from the current Western-style unhealthy dietary pattern closer to a Mediterranean-style dietary pattern, much higher in plants, did decrease people's depressive symptoms. And the percentages are always around the same, which is really eerie. So about 32% of the intervention group, when they tested at the end, did not have their clinical symptoms of depression anymore. Wow. Whereas only 8% of the control, because we know that depression can become okay on its own. So Megan, I feel like we've talked so much about scientific literacy and all the different limitations of nutritional studies and why you can't always take a headline at face value. I'm wondering if you could just recap some of that and pull out some of what you think are the most important things to keep in mind when you're reading nutritional advice on social media or mainstream media. One of the main things is to make sure that you do look further and provide critical analysis into anything that you see on social media or in the normal media ask for the paper, see if they link the paper. They usually don't, which is sad. Find the author, ask them for the paper. We're always happy to give you a little bit of a brief English summary of the research. When it comes to science literacy, I think it's really important to understand that the field of nutritional psychiatry is quite new. There's a lot of observational data in it, so the survey type data. And that doesn't tell us anything about the causation of diet and depression. So we don't really know yet which comes first. Does an unhealthy, highly processed diet cause depression? Or does being depressed cause you to eat an unhealthy processed diet? We don't know the answers to that yet. So there's this very bi-directional relationship. So you can't, even from all the research that's been done, we can't say that. The next step into that is doing these controlled trials where we do assess causality. But again, it can tell us that changing from an unhealthy to a healthy diet does seem to improve 
symptoms of depression, but it doesn't tell us the other stuff either, whether or not depression does tend to make people eat more unhealthy. And I think that that is a very valid argument. (laughs) Yeah, it could be a little bit of both, right? Very much so. So what are some of the questions that you're tackling now and look forward to in the field in the next few years? Yeah, so I'm really excited to kind of position myself as a leader in plant-based diet and depression. That's really what I want to do and start looking at these other questions that we have, why there is such a high rate of depressive symptoms in that population, but their diet actually seems to be protective. I would love to do more on that and looking at plant-based diet. And I think it's a really important thing to acknowledge that I might be positioned as a really good leader in that field because I'm not vegan and vegetarian. So the research won't have that little bit of implicit inherent bias that a vegan or vegetarian lead researcher might have, even though I do highly believe that plants are very good for your mental health because of my research. Yeah, oh, I agree. I think the whole area of understanding all the ways that bias can enter into study design, study execution, study analysis, framing the results. I think that's fascinating. And there are just so many layers that bias can enter even without the author's awareness. Exactly, exactly. So if people want to learn more from you and about this field, where can they find you and what are some of your top resources? Yes. So I have a website called meganlovingmeagain.com. That's also my Instagram and Facebook handle. So it's at meganlovingmeagain. And then on Twitter, I'm meganleephd. Some of the resources that I really love in this field, number one, if you want to know everything about nutritional psychiatry up to about 2020 when the book was written, Brain Changer by Professor Felice Jacker is the best one that gives the overall idea of the field and it includes references, which I love. Mm -hmm. The Proof is in the Plants by Simon Hill is amazing if you're looking at overall health for vegan and vegetarian diets. He knows everything about the scientific evidence of every single thing about plant-based diet in a very non-preachy way, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So it's not like shoving it down your throat. It's very critical, actually. And I love that about that book. And The Psychobiotic Revolution by Anderson, Krynan and Dynan. All right. Which is all about the new field of gut microbiome and food and mood. All right. Well, I really want to learn more about that. So thank you for the recommendations. No problem. And thank you again for your time. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye.